0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts 10, 34 through 48. So Peter opened his mouth and said, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word And then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to to Christ. Christ.
1: Thanks, Samantha. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Would love, uh, before I get into the sermon, just to celebrate a little bit uh, with you, uh, just in terms of celebrating the generosity of this congregation Uh, moving toward year-end, we actually, it looks like, are are either going to meet or exceed the stretch goals that we had set uh, in a year after uh, a two-year pandemic, uh, right before which we sent out about 200 people to plant a Cool Springs congregation, and then in the middle of which we sent out another couple of hundred people from here to plant another congregation in North Nashville, which, you know, every time you start new congregations, there's a, there's a season of, of recouping and recovery, and one of the alarmingly wonderful things is that, that the generosity has actually exceeded any previous years, even in light of the sending, uh, which enables us to move forward in 2022 with, with all of the things that we believe God has uh, placed on us as a church Uh, in terms of of deepening and enriching and moving forward with robust life-giving community and care inside the church, as well as the ministries of worship, uh, like the one we get to be part of today, and also to continue to be the giving church that we love being able to do, continuing to deploy approximately 40% of our resources outward to missional partners and needs in our city and beyond. So I just want to thank you for that. Uh, I also want to give a little bit of a teaser for next week. Next week, I'm going to introduce uh, the person that we just hired to direct uh, the, the life and vitality and ministries and staff and team of the Old Hickory Boulevard congregation. And I really look forward to introducing you to her and her to you. Uh, If you can be here to introduce yourself, give her a warm welcome in the hallway, I I think that would be a a great way to welcome uh, uh, Jennifer, which is her name. I can't wait wait to to introduce you to her. So all those things being said, let's dive into the text uh, from today. And I'll just start this way. If you've been a Christian for long, uh, you've probably discovered somewhere along the way that Christianity has a handful of critics. One group of critics would say that Christianity strikes them as distastefully exclusive. How can Christians say that Jesus is the only way into a saving relationship with God? Isn't that disrespectful to people who aren't religious or to people of other religions? And yet Jesus has left us with words that we have to wrestle with, and figure out how to graciously live with them and express them and communicate them. Uh, Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says that no other name has been given under heaven except the name of Jesus Christ by which people can be saved. And Christ himself said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And these are really hard things that open Christianity up to uh, being called things like distastefully exclusive. But ironically, on the other hand, the other significant, sizable group of critics toward Christianity are the ones who think that Christianity is distastefully inclusive. And we looked at one of those reasons last week when we looked at uh, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who, you know, we're told in the Scripture uh, before he was converted to Christianity was, was violent uh, he was a persecutor of, of the people of Jesus, and he even refers to himself as the worst of all sinners. And, you know, as soon as God announces to a man, Ananias, that Saul of Tarsus is now part of us, part of, part of the body of Christ, Ananias says, wait, are we talking about the same person? Surely he's not part of us now. Surely he's not someone that I'm supposed to call brother now in light of all the things that he's done. And so I don't know about you, I, I, I had a little bit of a, an Ananias kind of twinge in my heart quite some time ago when I heard in the news that the serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, had converted to Christianity while awaiting his own death on death row, and uh, read a, an account from a man named Roy Ratcliffe, who's the pastor who would regularly visit Dahmer in prison. He said this in the eulogy at Dahmer's funeral. Jeff confessed to me his great remorse for his crimes. He wished he could do something for the families of his victims to make it right, but there was nothing he could do. He turned to God because there was no one else to turn to, but he showed great courage, I believe, in his daring to ask the question, is heaven for me too? Many people are resentful of him for asking that question, but he dared to ask and he dared to believe the answer. I'm to sit with that for a while. Maybe want to leave now. I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? In the same way that, that, that one might imagine that first century Christians would have been a hard pill for them to swallow, to hear that Saul of Tarsus was now one of them. Saul of Tarsus had now been welcomed by the Savior Jesus Christ into the family of God. We've said it before, there there are likely to be three surprises in heaven for everybody who's there. Number one, there are going to be people there that you didn't expect to be there. Number two, there are going to be people who are not there that you did expect to be there. And number three, you're going to be there. Now, this speech is given by the Apostle Peter after the conversion, and in light of the conversion of a man named Cornelius. This is Peter reflecting on the conversion of a Gentile man to the Christian faith. Now, here's the thing about Peter Peter had a series of character deficits. He was abrasive, impulsive, cowardly at times, xenophobic. He had his issues. And yet, he begins as an insider to this whole account with Cornelius. He's an insider with the family of God, even with all of those character attributes and faults and flaws. And Cornelius is described here in Scripture as a devout man who feared God, gave generously, prayed continually, and yet is, a, is still an outsider. Even with a life like that, is still an outsider, until he encounters Peter and hears speeches like the one in front of us. What is that about? I'd like to unpack that question under two points today. First, there is no completion outside of Christ. And secondly, there is no person who cannot be welcomed by Christ. So, no completion outside of Christ. We, we sang it as if we believed it. I, you guys are singing more than you ever have. I don't know how wonderful... you you understand or don't understand that 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 rings to the ears of a pastor. You're singing robustly and, and I can only assume that you mean it. Here are some things today that you sang and meant. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. There is no completion outside of Christ For anyone who is a sinner, and everyone, including the likes of Cornelius, who's devout and feared God and gave generously and prayed continually, is a sinner. Verse 36 and following talks about the good news of peace that comes through Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, this is Peter speaking, with the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word of God and everyone there was amazed. So this word peace that Peter uses is an echo of, of, one, of the, one of the main feature, featured central words in all of the Old Testament, in all of Jewish culture and, and Hebrew history. It's the word shalom in the Hebrew. And shalom means peace. It means full, comprehensive flourishing for the people of God. And the more tethered we are to God, the more we will experience and taste that full, comprehensive flourishing. How do you get it? Well, even in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted to be the Prince of Peace, it's in Isaiah chapter 9. You know C.S. Lewis put it this way, and C.S. Lewis spent many decades not connected or tethered to Christ before he became connected and tethered to Christ, and reflecting on all of that in his autobiography, he says this, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Why would God send Peter, with all of his character deficits, as the messenger to Cornelius with all of his character virtues? It seems like it should be the other way around, and yet it's not. You know, Cornelius is a devout man who, according to the text, is clearly in the same camp as Bono and the band were when they sang these wonderful words in one of the best rock songs of all time. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's Cornelius. Yeah, that's Cornelius. He's missing the fullness that can be his from God. He's not the only person who's been spoken of like this and who's like him in the Scripture. John chapter 3, there's a man named Nicodemus, also devout. Also a man of great stature, a man of great wealth, a man of great power, but, but, but especially like Cornelius, a devout man who feared God, gave generously, prayed often, centered his life around the temple, etc. And yet he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, Jesus, this, this peasant prophet, for answers because he hasn't found them yet. He hasn't found his, his peace with God Then there's another one who is known now as the rich young ruler. This is a rich young man who also, like Nicodemus, had centered his life around God and around the temple. Says he's kept the law of God since he was a child. And yet he's still pressed to ask Jesus the question, what do I still lack? It's like a hearkening in both of these instances back to the book of Ecclesiastes, where you've got this man who has everything. He's got Sex, money, power, religion, he's got all of it. And his conclusion is you know, outside of, of a life that is characterized by fearing God and shunning evil, outside of a life that is tethered to God, there is no happiness. There is no peace. God cannot give that happiness or peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And that's why the, at, at the peak of his success, at the peak of, of you know, an apex of, of of, of winning at life, of crushing it, the writer of Ecclesiastes says it, it's all vapor. It's all vanity. Yeah, I've been streaming a series recently, um, you know, with the cold. I've gotten back on the rowing machine, and one of the things I do to um, divert my attention away from the pain that I'm afflicting on myself on the rowing machine is to, to watch a series on, on the TV. And the series that I'm watching right now. Yesterday was an episode, maybe, maybe you'll be able to guess the series uh, when I describe this scene. There, there, there are two men. There's a, there's a rich young man, he's probably 32 to 35 years old, standing in the backyard of one of his many mansions. And this particular mansion, uh, the back overlooks this, this idyllic, um, you know, body of water and mountains and sky. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. And Uh, next to him is one of his consultants and his consultant is going on and on about how do we make you more rich? How do we how do we make your empire even bigger? And at a certain point in the conversation, the rich young man says to his consultant, I'm actually bored. I'm actually bored. There's a strange meaninglessness to all of this. I think what I want to try next is Poverty. I want to try being poor for a while and see if it can bring the meaning and happiness that being rich has not been able to. It's very insightful. This inability to make ourselves happy. When we are confronted with that inability, it's like God putting a smelling salt beneath our soul to awaken our soul's to what C.S. Lewis said. Happiness and peace cannot be found outside of God. And it's very possible in a room like this, especially in a community like the one we're surrounded by, it's very possible that there are all sorts of people in this service as well as the earlier service as well as those online who are saying, well, you know, actually I feel pretty good about life right now. I feel like the career and the family and the friends are... Or humming it. I I actually made more money during the pandemic than I did before the pandemic. Things are great right now. And so here's what I want to do, respectfully, is is to ask the question that Francis Schaeffer would often ask people who were building their lives on a happiness foundation that was not God. And the question is this, How will the career, the friends, even the family resolve the day of your death? Are they going to show up for you? Are they going to fix that? Are they going to maintain your peace? See, all of these things that, that we anchor our lives on, that, that we think are going to be the source of our happiness, whether it's our, you know, career, family, friends, material goods, you know, vacations, houses in many houses like the guy in Ecclesiastes, those are like preservatives in a Twinkie, okay? So Twinkie, this is, this is the amazing thing about Twinkie preservatives. You can take a Twinkie, put it on the shelf, leave it there for 25 years. It'll taste the same as it would if you ate it today but you leave it on that shelf for 100, 150 years, no way. Every preservative, even, has a shelf life. Nothing can preserve you beyond your death. Nothing. Nothing can keep you happy and at peace beyond your death. Nothing, except for God. You're counting on preservatives to to do what only an everlasting God has the ability to do. There is no completion outside of Christ. Then secondly, and lastly, there is no person who cannot be welcomed by Christ. So, So let's think about Cornelius and Peter again, okay? God puts these two strange bedfellows together. Cornelius might have some moral concern about this man, Peter, virtuous man that Cornelius is. And he might ask himself, or maybe he might even be so bold as to ask God, how can a man like Peter with all of these distasteful personality qualities be on the side of God? And on the other hand, Peter, because of the, the culture that he'd been steeped in and the assumptions that he had been steeped in all of his life, that people who were ethnic, cultural, socio-political outsiders to his community could not be included or welcomed into the family of God. And all of a sudden here you have Cornelius who's an uncircumcised Gentile centurion, Roman soldier. Both of these men receive a vision from angels who are sent by the same God with the same message. I'm putting the two of you together and I'm making you into brothers. So Cornelius, I want you to send for a man named Peter. And Peter, when you hear from a man named Cornelius, I want you to go, and I want you to preach the gospel to him. Both of them submit. Cornelius sends for Peter, and then Peter concludes this. These are Peter's words. I understand. As if to say, I understand now in a way I didn't before that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, there are people who are acceptable to him. This is not God changing his mind. This is Peter being awakened to what's been true all along, all the way back to God's promises to Abraham. In the very first book of the Bible, in the very, toward the very beginning of history, the, 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 was that Abraham is going to be the father of all who have faith, and, 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 and all those people are going to come from all nations around the world. Somewhere that reality had gotten lost in tribalism for Peter. So the point here, one of the many points is that grace casts a very wide net. God is a big tent kind of God. And you know Peter, of all people, had discovered that long before this experience. Because when, when he was converted to Christ, around the time he was converted to Christ, he dealt with moral insecurity in, in ways that, that, that maybe Cornelius had moral security. There's this, there's this episode in Luke chapter 5 where where Peter just observes Jesus teaching a crowd and and he says, okay, just, just hearing you teach, just seeing you do your thing, just watching you connect with people confirms to me that there's no way there could be a place in your heart for somebody like me. There's no way that there could be a welcome into your home and family, for somebody like me. And so he says to Jesus, go away, Lord. Like, as if to say, I get it. Go away. I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy of you. And he was right. But at the same time, Jesus' message to Peter then is the same message that he's now preaching through Peter. It is always a mistake to think that moral deficiency and distasteful personality features will rule somebody out of God's kingdom. Otherwise, you just have to throw the whole Bible out. You have to throw the whole Bible out if you're going to rule out people with moral deficiencies or distasteful features or a regrettable past. It's also a mistake to conclude that Cornelius got the welcome from God because of his moral virtue. The prophet Isaiah Put it this way. Again, one of the most virtuous people in the world when he wrote this, Isaiah, (laughs) says, nonetheless, all of our most righteous works, all of our best works are like filthy rags when put next to the holiness of God. Then the Apostle Paul, there's none righteous, not even one. So where's the release valve for all of this? Verse 36. The good news of peace comes through Jesus Christ. So I've already shared a little bit about the first meaning of the word peace, the the Old Testament emphasis on shalom, comprehensive flourishing. The New Testament emphasis of peace, on the other hand, is that the war is now over, which presumes that there was a war. Not only between the impetuous, sometimes offensive, almost always annoying Peter and God, there was also a war going on between Cornelius and God, even as Cornelius was in the act of giving generously and of praying continually. There was a war between Cornelius and God because it wasn't enough. Just like the very worst things about you, will never cast you so far away from God that he cannot and will not reach to you, the very best things about you are never good enough to get you to the other side. You Imagine you've got two people standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. One of them is a two-year-old just recently learned to walk. And the other is a three-time Olympic gold winner in the long jump, still in their prime. If either of them tries to leap across the Grand Canyon, they will perish equally. They'll perish equally. The the long jumper has no edge over the two-year-old when trying to make that leap. What both need is a helicopter that they can grab their seat, buckle up, rest, fall asleep if they want to, while the driver carries them to the other side. That's what salvation means in Scripture. In repentance and rest, this is Isaiah again, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And then he says, but you would have none of it. You want your pride to get you there. You want your accomplishment, You want the preservatives to preserve you Forever. It's not going to happen. You've got to get behind the one who's in the driver's seat, and that's Christ. So the takeaway here is there are no people who are so debased that God would refuse to carry them over if they would trust him. And likewise, there are none who are so devout that they don't need to be carried to the other side. You know, so the two errors are to think yourself either so debased, God would never be willing to carry me. That's Peter. Go away from me, Lord. Or so devout that God's obligated to, that would be the temptation of somebody who's living life patterns like Cornelius. You know, the Pharisees, you know, their ego got to them with this sort of stuff. So there's a third error here. You know, both Cornelius and Peter emerge from this, this episode Belonging to Christ, belonging to the family of God, belonging to each other. They both emerge from from this episode, belonging. And the third error would be for either of them to credit himself for wising up. Because any spark that moves toward God in us, God put it there. There is no such thing as a self-generated spark for God in the human heart. What does that mean about free will? Look, I don't know. Like, God's sovereignty, the free will of a human being, very complicated subject. Theologians, the best theologians over the history of of the church have not been able to completely solve that tension. But here is what I know. Peter and Cornelius came into relationship with God because God initiated with them and not the opposite of that. This word draw that Jesus uses in John chapter 6, verse 44, he says this. It's a very bold claim. Jesus says, nobody can come to me. Nobody has the ability to come to me. Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So I once heard a theologian named R.C. Sproul teaching on this very verse, and he asked the question, have you ever witnessed somebody getting water out of a well by looking down into the well and saying, here, water, water, and then the water just brings itself up? This is the only way the water ever comes up and defies gravity is if you've got a force stronger than gravity pulling the water up. So this word draw that Jesus uses, the only other place that, that it can be found in ancient literature is in reference to somebody drawing water out of a well. But it goes further than that. The 53rd Psalm and then, uh, and then Romans 3 both represent David in the first case and Paul in the second case saying these words, there's no such thing as a person who seeks after God. There's no such thing. No one seeks God. For math people, that means it's an empty set. There's no such thing as a human being who, in a self-generated way, seeks after God. God has to ignite something first. And, and, and Paul brings it home in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead, he says. And by nature, children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, it's called Surprised by Joy. He has this section where, where he says, you know, Sometimes we hear people talking about man's search for God. Then he goes on to say, any talk, it's what I believe he says, any talk about man's search for God makes about as much sense as a mouse searching for a cat. It's the opposite. It, it, it always works the other way around. There's no such thing as a mouse searching for a cat, Lewis is saying, in the same way there's no such thing as a, as a man who on his own searches for God. Now, this was C.S. Lewis reflecting not only on his conversion to Christianity but the decades of atheism and agnosticism that preceded it before his friend J.R.R. R. Tolkien talked him into considering this stuff and was used by the Holy Spirit. In that process. And so here's what Lewis goes on to write about his own conversion which took place when he was teaching history at Oxford University in 1929. That which I greatly feared, Lewis says, had at last come upon me. I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant, reluctant convert in all of England I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words... From the Bible, compel them to come into me, as the Lord says. Properly understood, those words plumb the depth of the divine mercy, and he closes it with this. This is a mic drop. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and God's compulsion is our liberation. Does that offend us? Does that give us joy? Does it trouble us? Does it make us glad? We're all on our own journey. This is one of the smartest Christians who ever lived. And even Lewis saying, the cat didn't chase the mouse. I would still be in my former life of unbelief. What's the point here? The reason why Peter and later Cornelius sought God was that God had already been seeking them. And it's a fair question to ask, like what, what, what triggered Cornelius to do things like pray and give generously and, and desire God? It, it, the biblical answer seems to be that God was already seeking God him. So if you're seeking God, it's because God has started seeking you first. If you miss him, if if you've missed him, he missed you first. If you desire him, he desired you first. If you love him, as the beloved disciple John says, if you love him, it's only because he first loved you. What What a declaration, not only of our callousness of heart. I I would hate for us to walk away thinking that and and having that be our major takeaway. The major takeaway is, in spite of any callousness of heart that any of us might have, he treasured us that much. He treasured us enough to pursue us. Like the prophet Hosea, he's even willing to chase after a prostitute and turn her into a queen Because of a love that he just can't shake off. That's the disposition of God toward Cornelius, toward Peter, toward you, toward me. That is his disposition and posture. Two final details about the text. The rhetorical question is asked, what can stop these people who've believed from being baptized? Baptism is a sign of belonging and of welcome in the same way that a wedding ring is a sign of belonging, of covenant. It also says, Peter does, when Christ came up from the dead, one of the things that I remember most, Peter said, is that he ate with us and he drank with us, which is a sign of peace. You're not at war with people that you eat and drink with. You are at peace, your friends, your family. You make a home together. And so the table in front of us, it's a reminder that we are all in here as equally welcomed. And at peace with God as Cornelius and Peter were. And why is that so? Because just as it was the case with Cornelius and Peter, it is with us as well that Jesus lost both the welcome of God and peace with God on the cross so that we could have both, not as a preservative to get us through for a certain period of time, but unto everlasting life. Thanks be to God. You pray with me. Lord, as King David once prayed, one thing I have asked of the Lord and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now how could the same man who wrote the words, no one seeks after God, talk about how now there is one thing that he will seek after, and that's God. It's because, Lord, you first sought him. And we, when we are made aware that you are seeking us, something is ignited in our hearts that makes us feel things, that make us want to seek you because we miss you, because we desire you, because we love you, knowing that you first missed us, that you first desired us, and that you first loved us. And so as we come to the table to eat and drink, not only with you, but eat and drink from you and eat and drink of you, Lord, would you remind us once again that you came for the Cornelius in us when we're at our best and for the Peter in us when we are sometimes at our worst. Because the terms of this table are not our behavior, not what we have to bring. The terms of this table are what you have brought, Lord, and that is everlasting life. You so gave. You so gave because you so loved. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.